Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, if this is your first or uh, second or maybe just a number of times you've been visiting, but I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, I would love to meet you after the service um, and greet you. We are glad that you're here, so welcome. Uh, we are in the book of Exodus this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at the first uh, half of this chapter. Where we left off last week was that uh, Moses had been uh, fleeing from Egypt. He had murdered an Egyptian taskmaster in defense of an Israelite slave. He murdered him, and Pharaoh is breathing threats against him, and so he has fled, and he has run into the wilderness. But as he has run into the wilderness, as he is there, he, he also, uh, we also knew that Israel was still in bondage, that that act that he did on the part of Israel was just a single act. It wasn't an act of complete deliverance for them. They still remained in their slavery. They are under the, the, uh, the bondage of Egypt, and they are crying out to God. And we heard that God heard their cries. He saw their oppression, and he promised he was going to act. And we see in this passage that God is starting to answer that cry. He doesn't answer it immediately. It's many years later. And he doesn't answer it in the nation of Egypt. He actually begins to answer the people's cries long way from Egypt, in the wilderness, through Moses. And so let's go ahead and begin our reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he, fled, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside he to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God. On this mountain. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In September 1908, 
at the parade grounds of Fort Myer in, here in Virginia, there was a site that was seen that had never been seen before. Uh, there was an, an activity, hold on one second, I'm getting pulled on here. That's better. There was something uh, occurring at this parade site that people had never seen. They had heard rumors of what was about to take place, but no one had ever witnessed this thing in, with their own eyes. They had heard stories about it, but they had never seen it for themselves. And so there were newspaper men, and there were, there were politicians, there were army officials, there were all sorts of people who were there to witness this unique event that was to take place. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was there. He was going to report back to his father what he had seen. On this day, many people came, hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands, just a few hundred of people made it to this parade ground to watch Orville Wright take off and fly his first ever public flight. His brother Wilbur had flown in France just a few weeks before, but no one in the States had seen this pub public exhibition. And so there he was at the parade grounds, ready to take off, ready to show the world what they had promised they had already done. We know the story. We know how they constructed this plane. They flew it at Kitty Hawk. They had practiced in their hometown of Dayton, Ohio, but there was no public demonstration. In fact, there were rumors and there were stories that they had, in fact, taken flight, but people didn't believe them. They said, surely this is impossible. There is no way that man has taken off. There is no way that flight is possible. It had never been done before, and so there were scientists and inventors there at the parade grounds thinking that they would see what would only confirm their suspicions. This plane would never take off. See, they had an understanding of the world, an understanding of the world that consisted of man not being able to fly. There were some who said this in newspaper articles, things like people will fly at the same time they hit on perpetual motion. Now, I'm not an engineer, but I'm pretty sure we haven't hit that one yet still, right? And so, so they were thinking, this will never occur. It's impossible. We will never see flight. And yet there they were, with this paradigm for understanding what was possible and what was un impossible. And so these few hundred onlookers watched as Orville got into his plane. He started it up. He went down the makeshift runway, and lo and behold, it took off. He took off, and he rose, and he flew around the parade grounds, and he circled back, and he went up and down, and he got to the speed that the army officials wanted him to get to. I forget how long he flew around, but eventually he landed. But Teddy Roosevelt Jr., he reported this. He said that when the plane first rose, the crowd's gasp of astonishment was not alone at the wonder of it, but because it was so unexpected. I'll never forget the impression the sound from the crowd made on me. It was a sound of complete surprise. When Orville landed, it was said that three to four newspaper men came running up to him to interview him. But as they approached the plane, there were tears streaming down their cheeks because they were so overwhelmed by the drama of seeing what they thought was impossible. Their idea for how the world works and what is possible and impossible, it was changing. 
the paradigm that they had for how the world worked was, was exploding. It's, it's funny to actually read some of the newspaper articles from around that time and leading up to it. There were people who actually said, well, well maybe they can fly. But even if they can fly, what does it matter? What practical purpose will we ever have with air flight? It's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? I mean, what, what practical benefit will we ever receive by taking off and flying around the country and all over the world? What, I mean, we laugh at now because we can't imagine a world without flight. They couldn't imagine a world with flight. They had a paradigm for how the world worked, for what was possible. And in that moment, their paradigm for what was possible, for how the world operated, was shattered. That's what's happening in this passage. A new paradigm is being formed. It begins with the burning bush. I mean, Moses is perplexed. He's surprised, as rightfully so, right? Because bushes, I, I double-checked with my kids, bushes, when they catch on fire, they what? They burn, <laughs> right? They turn to ash. They turn to coal. But this bush didn't. And so Moses is perplexed. He's strange, right? Like this, this is changing the paradigm that he has for how the world works. And so what does he do? In verse 3, we're told. He goes over and he looks at it, right? He says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? Like that is perhaps maybe the most understated response that we could have expected, right? I mean, the bush isn't burning. This isn't normal. God is changing the way in which we're to see the world, that with God, anything is possible. But it's not just with this burning bush. That's how God gets his attention. The real paradigm that God is changing, the paradigm that he is breaking, is the way in which Moses and we understand who God is. You see, it's out of the bush that God speaks. And he calls to Moses, and he starts to tell Moses who he is and the kind of people that he's going to use. And it's going to destroy the paradigm that Moses has. You see, the visible God is making himself visible through this bush and is going to speak to Moses. And he's going to tell him who it is that is speaking to him. Now listen, we've formed ideas of who God is. We have them. We have ideas of, of who God is. There's some of his attributes that we like to cling on to, that we hold to, and, and others that we maybe don't think about as much. There are aspects of who God is that our culture likes to appropriate and cling to, but there are others that we deny. We all do this. And so we are all in need of having our paradigm of who God is reshaped and reformed. And that's what God's doing in this passage. And he's going to tell us that the God who is speaking out of this bush, the God who's revealing himself to Moses, is the God who cares for his people and also the God who is holy. We see that he cares for his people first in the very fact that he calls out to Moses in verse 4, Moses, Moses. Now, this may not seem odd to us, but it actually indicates that God cares and knows who Moses is. You see, that repetition of the name is what theologians call a repetition of endearment. In ancient Semitic cultures, when a name was repeated like that, it indicated that the person who was calling who was saying that name, was showing love or endearment to the person that they were calling to. So if I was to talk to Hugh, and I'm not necessarily showing him love or care, I would just go, Hugh, come over here. 
but to go, Hugh, Hugh. It was a sign that I know him, that I have relationship with him, that he is endeared to my heart. And that's what God is doing to Moses. Now, Moses doesn't know who it is that is calling out to him. He doesn't know who this person is. But what he would have known is that this would have been odd. To be called with this repetition of name indicates that the person calling him knows him, even if Moses doesn't know the caller. God is showing endearment and love, even in calling to Moses. But he also shows endearment and love to his people. Later on in the passage, in verses 7 and following, we see that God makes explicit that he has heard the cries and seen the oppression of Israel. I'm not going to go into detail about this because we talked about it last week. But the point is, is that God sees the situation that his people are in and he cares for them. He's not aloof. He's not standoffish. He is near and he loves them. But God isn't just caring. God's also holy. He's holy. We see his holiness coming out in this passage. So Moses hears his name, Moses, Moses. Moses responds, here I am. And I imagine that as he says, here I am, he's slowly approaching the bush, kind of wondering, how is it that this is happening? Right? He's, he's getting nearer and nearer. And as he approaches the bush, as he says, here I am, what does God say? He says, do not come near. Stop. Don't move. Why? We're told in verse 5, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the ground in of itself, this mountain isn't holy. It's not that this little bit of dirt was better than the dirt somewhere else at the mountain across the valley. No, what made this place holy was God's presence. You see, God's holy, and when he, wherever he goes, he takes his holiness with him. Okay, so let's remember what it means to be holy. So when we think of holiness in the Bible, there's oftentimes two ways to think about it. There's moral perfection, right? Okay, there's, there is uh, the ethic of God's kingdom. Okay, there's purity. There's without sin. That's one way of understanding holy. But then there's another way of understanding holy. And I imagine that this is the way that many of us actually think about it, especially when we think about in terms to us. There's that set-apartness, right? And so when God calls us holy, when he says that you are his saints, often that's what we think about. God has set us apart. We are now a new people. We were once not a people. Now we are a people that are his, that we are set apart. But this isn't just for us. This is also true of God. God isn't just the one setting us apart. God himself is set apart. He's transcendent. He's different. He is absolutely pure and moral in his ethical character, but he is also very different than we are that there is a gap between us and him, that there is a gap between the creator and the creation, between the transcending God and the men and women that he has created. And it is that gap that I think that, Mo- that God is emphasizing in this conversation with Moses. That God is emphasizing that there is a difference between the father who is speaking and Moses, the one he is speaking to. That's why he says, stop. But it's not just reflected in the fact that he says, stop. We also see it in the fact that he says to Moses, remove your sandals. 
Remove your sandals. Now, this is interesting. We, we often won't pick up on this because when we think about taking off our shoes, we do it because we're, we're not wanting to track dirt into the house, right? We're, we're doing it as a way of consideration for the person's home that we're entering. And so we apply this as a sign of reverence. But there's more going on there than that. You see, in the ancient Near East, those people who didn't wear sandals, who didn't wear shoes, they were servants and slaves. So, for instance, in the prodigal son, I never noticed this before until this week. In the prodigal son, you remember that story that Jesus tells, that wonderful parable, the son who, who wants the inheritance, he goes and he, he wastes it all and he defames the family name and he dishonors his father and he spends all of his fortune, all of his money until at the last he comes to the end of his rope and he's eating uh, food that's given to the pigs. And he wakes up and goes, what is wrong with me? The servants in my father's house eat better than this, and so I will return, and I will make myself a servant in my father's house. That's what he says. And so he comes back to, to his father, and before he, he can even start his I'm sorry speech, before he can say, I, I'll be your servant, your slave, what does the father do? He showers him with love. Prepare the fatted calf. Give him a coat and give him sandals for his feet. He wanted to come as a servant, but he's really my son. See, when God tells Moses to remove his sandals, God is emphasizing that God is the master and Moses is the servant. That there is a difference between the father and between Moses. That there is a gap that the transcendent one in his holiness is greater than man. That's what he's doing. He's showing this to Moses, and Moses gets it. He understands the implications. We see it in verse 6. Moses, we're told, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The holiness of God, you see, when, when we are confronted by God's holiness, it should cause us to tremble. To tremble when we are confronted by it because we recognize our lack of holiness. We may not say with our lips, but we experience with our hearts the very words that the prophet Isaiah said when he was confronted by the holiness of God. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. The holiness of God. God is the one who is holy, and he's the one who cares for us. Now, now how is this breaking our paradigms? How is this changing the way in which we view God? Because most of us would probably give head knowledge to that, right? Like head, we give a head nod to that. Yeah, God's holy. God cares for us. God loves us. He's different. He's transcendent, right? Every one of us would say that if you're a Christian here this morning. However, many of us operate with an understanding of God that emphasizes one at the expense of the other. Right? I mean, there's aspects to God that we really like, that we embrace, like God's love. His care for us. So let me give you an example of this. A number of years ago, there were sociologists from uh, the University of Notre Dame who did a, an in-depth study looking at the religious life of American teenagers. And so they went around to these American teenagers and they watched them all over the country, different socioeconomic classes, different uh, church traditions. They examined them. They interviewed them. They asked them all sorts of questions. And what they found was that these teenagers had this kind of pseudo-religion that the researchers called 
uh, therapeutic moralistic deism. Excuse me, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Have, have y'all heard of this? A few of y'all. It, it's, it's a fascinating study and a fascinating read. But, but this moralistic therapeutic deism, how it's defined is basically, these teenagers said, um, there is a God, he created the world. Uh, and this God basically wants me to be nice and kind and fair to other people. And he wants me to be very, very happy. And he's only going to interject himself into my cir- circumstance and my situation when my happiness is being thwarted, when it's being put down. Oh, and by the way, relative good people, they all get to go to heaven. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, now you know what that is? That is emphasizing God's love and care at the expense of his holiness. That's what that is. And, and though the, the uh, research was done on American teenagers, I would venture to say that that way of thinking about God is not confined to teenagers. I mean, where did they learn that? Look in the mirror, y'all. They learned it from us. <laughs> and they learned it from the culture around us. That is the cultural air that we breathe. God wants you to be happy. It doesn't matter what you do. That there is no moral standard to which we are to live up to except for the moral standard that I or the community that I'm surrounded by tells me. That is a God who loves, but a God who is not holy. I'm going to say this, y'all. That, that might feel good. That might make us feel warm and fuzzy, but all that is is a hybrid God between Mr. Rogers and Santa Claus, right? Like, won't you be my neighbor? Yes, I will, <laughs> And will you shower me with blessing and gifts and all sorts of things that I desire, but don't hold me to any sort of standard? That is a God who loves, but a God who can do nothing about our situation. He may love, but he has no power to deal with our sin. To hold to a God, to emphasize his love at the expense of his holiness, means we are still doomed. But the flip side is true. You see, in, in a room full of people like y'all, I'm still getting to know y'all, but, but y'all are, you know, theologically savvy people, and so we love God's holiness, right? We love his righteousness, and we want to uphold that, right? That there is a way to live, and we should. That God is holy, he is righteous, but if we adhere to that at the expense of God's love, we're doomed as well. We're just as doomed because there's an ethical standard that none of us will ever meet. So we're still in trouble. See, what we need is we need the true God. The God who is absolutely holy and demands holiness from his people. But also the God who loves us enough to care for us and to deal with our sin in a way that we never could. That's what we have in the God of Exodus and the God of the Bible. That's what we have being presented here. This paradigm that is showing us that we need God who is both completely holy and completely loving. That we have a God who demands our holiness and loves us enough to provide a holy mediator to save us from our sin. And in Jesus on the cross, that's what we have. You see, in the cross, God's holiness and his love they kiss. I forget who said that. It wasn't me, but it was good. On the cross, God's holiness and his love, they meet. Because in the cross, we have a holy mediator who kept God's perfect law 
perfectly. And in his love gave himself for those who could not keep that law. God's holiness was met and his love was poured out. See, God, God loves you so much that he sent his son to keep his law to die for those who couldn't. God is giving us a proper understanding of who he is, that he is holy and that he is caring. But also he's giving us a proper understanding for the kind of people that he uses. Now, I will tell you, if, if I was to decide who are all the people that I'm going to surround myself with to, to do this incredible rescue mission, which God has set off on, I would look for all the smartest people, all the strongest. I'd look for young people who have lots of energy, right? I would look for uh, the healthy people. I would look for the sharp people, right? Have you all heard that? Sharp. He's really sharp. Um, I would look for those sorts of people. I would look for the people who are in places of influence and power. Those are the people I would look for. And there's no doubt that God uses some of those people. But what's fascinating is that as we read the Bible, how often God doesn't use those kinds of people. He uses the people we don't expect. He uses the unlikely people, even Moses. I mean, think about it. Moses actually has to be moved to this place of unlikely location and unlikely vocation and even of his age to be at this unlikely place where God would use him. God is going to move him out of the place of Pharaoh's palace. I mean, think about this. So, so Moses was in the perfect place to mount guerrilla war against Pharaoh, right? He's in Pharaoh's palace. He's grown up in his home. He can whisper in ears of people. He understands the culture. He can totally take Pharaoh down. He's a prince of Egypt, but that's not where God leaves him. Where does he send him? To the wilderness. Well, that doesn't make any sense to us, does it? To the wilderness, that location? That's the unlikeliest place to start a war against the most powerful nation of the world. But yet, that's what God does. He takes him to this unlikely location, but he also gives him an unlikely vocation. Did you notice what he's doing now? He's no longer the prince of Egypt. What is he? He's a shepherd. Okay, now, we're, you know, we know our Bibles. We're good Christian people, and so shepherd's a cool vocation, right? But not for Egypt. In Genesis, we're told the Egyptians saw, thought that shepherds were an abomination. He has this unlikely vocation, and he's also old. Or older. <laughs> Say older. <laughs> he's, old, he's getting on in years. So we know that he was 40. He was 40 when he killed that uh, Egyptian bond, or, uh, taskmaster. And we're told in Acts 7 that he goes out into the wilderness. He finds a wife. He gets married. He has a kid. And in Acts 7, we're told that it was 40 years later when he, God reveals himself at the burning bush. So, you know, that means Moses is 80. He's 80, and it is at his age of 80 that God is revealing himself to him and saying, you're going to go, and you're going to lead this people on a rescue mission out of Egypt, and you're going to defeat the most powerful nation in the world at 80. All right, like I'm 38, and that seems a bit daunting to me, right? I mean, how unlikely. The location, the vocation, the age. And Moses gets it. I mean, Moses isn't sitting around for 40 years wondering, thinking, man, I could have been somebody, right? I could have been the deliverer. 
He's not sitting around at the age of 80 thinking now is the time, right? In fact, we know he's not thinking that because when God tells him in verse 10 all that he's going to do, what does Moses say in verse 11? Who am I? Who am I? I mean, what a wonderful question. Who am I? 40 years later? Maybe. 40 years later when I was in Egypt's palace? Perhaps. 40 years earlier when, when I had this opportunity to whisper in ears, maybe that's when I could have led God's people. But now, who am I? This semi-nomadic shepherd who's a murderer, who's an older man, is going to now challenge the most powerful nation in the world. Who, who is Moses? He is the most unlikely of leaders. Who am I? Moses is right to ask that question because in of himself, he should ask it. And so should we. I mean, who are we? Who, who am I? And who are you? That's actually what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 1, one of the passages that was for our reflection this morning. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who is Moses? Who are you? Who am I? But notice what God says. He responds to Moses. Who am I? In verse 12, I will be with you. But God, who am I? But God, I will be with you. God doesn't affirm Moses' gifts or abilities. He doesn't go, Moses, you're just selling yourself short. You're still in really good health and good shape, and you can still lead these people. That's not what he says. He's in essence saying, that question, who am I? That's the wrong question. Moses, you should actually be asking, who is the Lord? Not who, who am I, Moses, but who is the Lord? Because it is the Lord that is with you. It is God. God is the one who's going to deliver Israel through Moses. God is going to be with Moses, and he is with us. You see, friends, when we go and we seek to share our faith with our friends, you may wonder, who am I? We don't have the words, but God goes with us. When we go to our places of work and we're trying to honor God in, in our vocation, when we're trying to be ethical and upright, and we feel these pressures to do things kind of under, under the radar, under the books, when, when we feel those pressures, who am I? Well, God is with you. Kids, when, when you're in school and you're feeling all those pressures, and you're feeling those pressures to, and temptations to do to do those things that you know you ought not to do that are not in keeping with Christian faith. God is with you. It's not who am I, it's who is he. He's the God who works in the unlikeliest of people, even Moses, even us. God is using the unlikely people, but he also uses the trusting people. Look at verse 12. This is how the passage ends. God says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Okay, did you hear when the sign is coming? It's in the future. This is really fascinating. God doesn't say, I'm going to do it, and by the way, here's now the sign, and he does something incredible, right? Like makes the mountain get up and move or something, right? He doesn't say that. some way he does. He says, the sign that I was with you, you will see years from now when you worship me on this mountain. So basically what God is saying is I'm not going to tell you how it's all going to happen, and I'm not going to share with you all the details right now, but what I need you to do is trust me. I need you to trust me. And when one day you will lead God's people out of Israel and you will bring them to this mountain and you will see that your trust was, not, was for naught. That you had every reason to trust me. That's what he's calling Moses to do and that's what he's calling us to do. And so Moses has to ask himself the question now. Is God trustworthy? We have to ask ourselves that question. Can we trust him? Kids, this is kind of like in the movie Finding Nemo. Y'all have seen that movie, right? Some of y'all, you little kids, you've seen Finding Nemo, that wonderful movie. Maybe not just the little kids, right? <laughs> A wonderful movie about this little clownfish who gets lost, is taken by a fisherman, and he ends up far away from his father, Marlin. And Marlin comes across this other fish. I forget what kind of fish Dory is, but she's a little weird, right? She's a little strange and goofy. She's kind of quirky, not, not really normal. Um, so, so he comes across Dor uh, Dory, and Dory's going to help Marlin find Nemo. And so they're swimming along, right? Just keep swimming, just keep... And they're, they're going. They're moving towards Australia, trying to find Nemo. And they come to this scene where there is this huge ditch. Remember this, like, trench in the ocean, and it is dark, and, and Dory's a little quirky, she's a little strange, but, but Marlin is like the, like he, he is so afraid of risk, right, and adverse to taking any sort of a chance. And so he looks at the dark trench and he's like, we need to swim over, not through. You remember this? And Dory's saying, no, 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 we need to swim through, not over. And Marlin's like, that is crazy, we're going to die. So what do they do? They go over, not through. Right? They go over, and when they go over, everything looks pretty good for a minute. And then they find themselves in a school of jellyfish. And now their lives are in danger. And so they swim through, they're trying to get out of there, and, and uh, Marlin saves Dory, and they get out. But, but Dory almost dies in the school of jellyfish. Right? She has that terrible scar on her. And, and well, anyway, she's okay, and they keep going. They keep going, but another scene shows up a little bit later because they're still moving towards Australia. And in the distance, they see this big gray kind of looking thing. Do you remember this? And what was it? It was a blue whale. And Dory starts speaking whale, right? Like who knew she could speak whale? Well, I didn't. So she starts speaking whale. And, and the blue whale comes and, and says, come near my mouth, right? Get into my mouth. And Marlin's freaking out again, right? Because that's not a good idea. Right? They're, they're little fish. They're going to jump into the mouth of a blue whale. Well, they get in, and now they're swimming around. We don't know where they're going. And finally, the whale starts talking to them and says, what? Go to the back of my throat. Right? And Marlin's thinking, we're going to die. We are whale food. Dory's saying, just let go. And, and Marlin sees the scar on Dory, and he remembers the jellyfish. And he remembers how she was right, and he remembers in his head, Dory saying, trust me. So they let go. And they go through the whale's blowhole. 
and they end up in the water, and where are they? They're in Sydney Harbor, exactly where they were intending to go. See, Dory showed herself to be trustworthy so that now in this moment, in this moment when it seemed like it was foolish, when it seemed like it was dangerous, when it seemed like there was no way that they would survive, that there was no way that they would continue on, she could be trusted again. Now, kids, God is more trustworthy than Dory. God has shown himself again and again and again to be trustworthy. And he's invoking his trust even by the name that he gives himself. Did you hear it? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Have you ever wondered why God says that always? Like he says it over and over again in the Old Testament. Well, there's a number of different reasons, and we're not going to go into all of them, but one of them, I think, is because God is invoking all that he has done for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, for what he has done to the patriarchs, that he used the unlikeliest of people, right? Liars and, and, and terrible people who, who did terrible things, right? Who, who we would never think that God would use. He used the unlikeliest of people and he was faithful to them. When he made them promises, he brought those promises to fruition. And he's saying to Moses and he's saying to us, you can trust me as well. I've been faithful in the past. I've been trustworthy before. You can trust me today and into the future. You see, friends, the truth is, is that we don't have to look as far back as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and even Moses. We don't have to look that far back to see God's trustworthiness. We can look back and see what God has done through his son. The fact that God would give his son and promise not just to be with Moses, but to be with us. It assures us that we can trust him today and tomorrow and until that day when Jesus will return and the unlikeliest of trusting followers will be with the God who is holy and the God who cares for us. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you that you have shown yourself to be trustworthy and that you are the God who is perfectly holy and perfectly loving that you have shown us love and care, not just to Moses, but you have shown it to us, your people. We thank you for that. Help us to trust you, to see you as you are, and to know that it is you that works in and through us. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen. I invite the ushers